Amen. We are so blessed as a church to be able to have that style of worship and that kind of worship and I hope when you come in you are expecting to hear from God and you're expecting to come in and praise God and bless God for what he gets us a chance to do today. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 so if you would please take your Bibles and join Exodus chapter 20. Thank you Greg and, and those of you that help with so much in the worship and thank you young men for taking up the offering. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 in a few moments. We're going to be in verse 13 and hopefully when you came in you got a bulletin when you came in. Not only is it good just to have the information inside of there what's going on in the life of the church but also on the back of that there's some notes and if you want to avail yourself of that and as we walk through this passage together that uh, you just follow along you can fill those blanks in. I was asked this week to uh, make the font a little bit bigger on the back. Um, so if you have been one of those that have been struggling because of the size of the font, um, somebody finally spoke up on your behalf, an advocate for you. And so we've made it a little bit bigger. And so if you still have problems, you just got to tell me. I mean, I can make this thing eight point. I can make this thing 30 point. I can give you an entire booklet if you want to. Whatever helps us as a church learn the word ingest the word, apply the word, and live the word. I mean, that's what we're going for here. So those notes are there on the back if you want to avail yourself of that. I don't know how many of you all remember some of this is going to hit, and so I think some of this might miss, but when I was growing up, one of the favorite shows that my grandma loved to watch was Perry Mason. I don't know if you remember that TV show, Perry Mason or not. Then you skip a few years and then you get to Matlock. And so you had what I always considered Andy Griffith. He was playing the judge there on Matlock. You skip a few more years and you find yourself in a real life courtroom out in California. And there is a lawyer that is looking at a jury and saying, if the glove does not fit, you must acquit. And then you go a little bit further on. I remember watching Tom Cruise in a movie theater when he's, or in a, in a, in a movie that he's playing in. He's looking at the jury and he's looking at the individuals and say, I want the truth. In all of these scenarios, you had several different factors at play. You had the accused, you had the accuser, and then you had a jury that was sitting there to render a judgment whether that person was guilty or not. So this morning, I want to do something maybe a little bit unorthodox, maybe something that you're not used to, but I just want to simply, I'm going to deputize you, commission you, or, or, uh, or direct you in these next few moments. You are going to be the accused. And you are going to be the jury. So by the time we are through this morning, I just want to ask you the question, maybe you can think about in your own mind, as the accused or you guilty. Now, I don't want anybody to say yes or no. I don't need a hand being raised. I don't need you to all to start playing, uh, you know, uh, squirrel revival here and start committing or confessing all the things you shouldn't be doing. I'm just simply asking you, are you guilty? And here's the accusation. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. God says this through Moses to the people. And he says this to the people that are gathered there at Mount Sinai. He is saying this to his people when it comes to what it means to follow after him. Traditionally, historically, we've talked about this being the Ten Commandments. But listen to what God says to his people. He says in verse 13, You shall not murder. Quite simply, that's the sixth commandment. You shall not 
murder. Now, I don't know about you, but if he is saying this, then obviously there was someone there that was murdering. There was someone there that was guilty of murder. Obviously, it was a big enough issue. It was a strong enough issue. It was going to be an important enough conversation to have that God decided to make this one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. So this morning, I just simply want you to ask yourself the question, am I guilty of murder? Now I realize that you're probably sitting there this morning and you're probably thinking to yourself, well of course I'm not guilty of murder. But hold on for a second. You see in our judicial system here in the United States of America we have different levels of murder charges. You have manslaughter one, you have manslaughter two, you have uh, a negligent homicide, you have other things that will consider different charges for different characters or different levels of what you are being accused of. And so just because somebody is being charged with premeditated murder or manslaughter slaughter or whatever the case may be there's different levels and so right here in the text not that he's taking God is taking his cues from our U.S. system but in the same way in the Hebrew language that will use that word that is translated into murder in different ways in fact some of you have a study bible some of you have a bible with notes or some type of other uh, references there and if you look at those references you will see something like this in your bible it will say that the Hebrew word also covers causing human death through carelessness or negligence so in other words what they are saying here what the translators are saying here is that Hebrew word that is translated into English as murder can also be used in other different ways. It can be used with somebody that has anger or malice or hatred, but it also can be used for someone that is just simply careless or negligent. So when he says, you shall not murder, he is saying to us, we should not be guilty of an action or inaction that is leading to the death of someone else. Now, I think that's important. I think that's an important foundation that we address right at the beginning because when I'm asking you if you are guilty, the majority of us, hopefully all of us in this room, say, no, Spence, I did not kill anybody this morning. But my greater question to you is, is our actions or inactions leading to the murder or the death of other people? See, the danger is, is we come to a text like this. We come to the commandments. And you will come and you'll look at maybe the first three, maybe the first four, and you'll say, yeah, yeah, I struggle with that, but everybody struggles with that. Or you'll come to something else and you say, well, you know, I used to, but I don't anymore. But there's some of these that you will come to and you'll just simply say, not me, not applicable, next. And I don't think there's a single one of these ten commandments, these ten foundations that God gives us that does application to us as a church today. So let me ask you, are you guilty? Maybe, maybe let me put it a different way. Are you guilty of the murder of the innocent? Are you guilty of the murder of the innocent? Now what do you mean the innocent, Spence? Why does it matter if somebody loses their life or not? What is the big deal on the value of life? Well, the big deal comes is the value of life comes from the giver of life. Why is life such a big thing? Why is the sanctity of life such a big thing? Every single January, especially here in Oklahoma, all the churches get together and they have a sanctity of life Sunday. It's coming back from Ronald Reagan, back when he issued the proclamation, looking back to the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and he said, we're going to set aside usually the third Sunday in every January as this is sanctity of life Sunday. And then you fast forward and usually right there in February, the Oklahoma Baptist put on the Rose Day where you take 
take the roses to your politicians and down to the Capitol to try to say, we stand with life. And some people say, well, Spence, why is there such a big deal made over life? It's because God gave us life. And because God has given us life, God places a value in life. Think about what he says in Genesis 1 and verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. The value of life comes from the giver of life. And God has said that every life is valuable in the eyes of God. And yet we have a tragedy taking place today. Over 61 million abortions have taken place in the United States since 1973. In January of 1973, the landmark Supreme Court decision known as Roe v. Wade was issued, handed out, giving abortion legal standing in the United States. And since then, over 61 million abortions have been performed in the United States since 1973. And now, with the advent of abortifacients and chemicals and prescription, those numbers are even going higher. It's just hard to try to track who took the morning after pill, who took the bland B who took that stuff and so those numbers aren't even included so the numbers of children that are being aborted babies that are being aborted in the womb is only going higher and higher and higher and God looks and says life matters to me and then his people look and say but it doesn't matter to us and so we have the murder of the innocent taking place all around us Now I realize that you probably don't perform abortions and I'm assuming that the majority of you probably haven't been guilty of that or not. But the problem is, brothers and sisters, are we sitting by and allowing it to take place? Are we sitting by and being quiet while it takes place? Are we sitting by and doing nothing when the murder of the innocent is taking place all around us? And does that make us guilty by carelessness or negligence? The latest numbers that came out from the Guttmacher Institute indicate that over 400 abortions are performed in the state of Oklahoma every single month. Just last year in 2019, over 42.3 million babies were aborted worldwide. In fact, abortion is the leading cause of death in the world. You may say, well, Spence, what is the point for me today? The point for us today is that we have too far too many people that claim a religious affiliation or claim a Christianity and yet when it comes time to stand up and to speak out, we don't say a word. I'm going to tell you, coming up, 60 days, coming up, there's a big election that is happening and I'm not going to tell you what name to vote for, I'm not going to tell you what party to vote for, but I will tell you one of the great distinctions, one of the great dividing lines between the two opposing candidates that are running has to do with the sanctity of life. One says we don't care when you kill him or how you kill him or how late you kill him and the other one says we don't think you should kill him at all and we as a church need to ask ourselves are we guilty of the murder of the innocent God comes in in Exodus 20 and verse 13 and says you shall not murder he's saying you should not be guilty of the negligence or the carelessness you should not allow it to go on and yet we are in the church today turning a blind eye turning a deaf ear and just going on like business as usual Are you guilty? Are we guilty? The murder of the innocent. 
Maybe the murder of the ignorant. The murder of the ignorant. One of the things the Bible so clearly reminds us of is that every person will one day answer to God. In fact, Hebrews 9 verse 27 and 28 says, As it is pointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. He reminds us that every single person, both male and female, both young and both old, both doesn't matter what ethnicity or what described race, it doesn't matter. Every single person will stand before God one day and every person will give an account of their heart and their lives and their actions before God. Every single person will stand before God one day and give an account. But the Bible also tells us that there's a great dividing line when it comes to people around us. It's not based upon race. It's not based upon ethnicity. It's not based upon social economic policies. It's not based upon the haves or the have-nots. It's based upon are you saved or are you lost? And there's a great dividing that's going to come up when God will separate the saved from the lost. And there will not be any going back. There will not be any changing your mind. There won't be any line jumping. It'll be simply matter. You're saved and you're lost. And all those right now that are in that group of the lost, they have a problem. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Scripture tells us that there is a group of people. There are people in this world today that are spiritually darkened because their heart is lost, because they're saved, and they're alienated from the truth. And so they're living life, and God knows they will stand before God one day. We know they will stand before God one day. And yet they are living in darkness because no one has told them about Jesus Christ. And they're living in ignorance. And their souls are in peril. Who are you talking about, Spence? Let me just give you some numbers. As of the latest numbers, and this is according to the Joshua Project. You're more than happy to go fact check me. Go to joshuaproject.net. It's an organization, it's a group that tracks the worldwide population and especially the evangelism, the evangelization of the worldwide population. So you go to joshuaproject.net and here's some numbers they give us. They tell us that there are 17,446 different people groups in the world. 17,446 different people groups in the world. Now they define a people group as having a distinct language or a distinct culture or a distinct uh, distinction as far as geographically or something else. So they say out of that 17,446 different people groups, this is what they tell us. 7,408 are still unreached. 7,408 are still unreached. Now you may say, well, Spence, what be unreached. What it means as they define it is that unreached people lack sufficient number of Christians in the area or the resource to evangelize the people around them. In other words, they don't have a Bible in their own language. They don't have a church represented. They don't have any kind of a mission outreach taking place. They may be a Christian or a two here and there, but by and large they are considered to be unreached people because there is nobody on a regular basis proclaiming the word, teaching the word, preaching the word of God. And so they would define them as being unreached. That means 42% of the world population has never heard about Jesus Christ. How? With the advent of communication, the advent of technology, and all this right now media and the 24-hour news cycle, how is it that someone has still never heard about Jesus Christ? In fact, they tell us over 775 billion people is the population of the world today and they claim 3.23 billion have still not been reached 3.23 billion people 
Over 40% of the world's population has never heard about Jesus. We take for granted that we get to come into a church. We take for granted that we have a Bible in our own language. We take for granted that we can turn on Bot Radio or we can turn on Caleb or we can turn on the House FM. We take for granted that we can have this stuff on our Facebook feed. We take for granted that we can come to church and not come to church. We take for granted that we have these things, this knowledge about God. We take for granted that we have all this readily that are available and we just assume that everybody else has it. And this is the ignorance. There's the ignorant living here today that will die and go to hell in their lost state. And we as Christians are fine with that. So I come in and I sit on a padded pew in the air conditioning and the lights. The noise amplification. I go home in my nice vehicle and I go back to my place where I've air conditioned or heated and I have food that's prepared for me. Usually we have more food that we can eat and we end up throwing the rest of it away. We have opulence and we have all these possessions around us and we're living this kind of life like we really don't care that people are dying and going to hell. And I wonder, church, are we guilty of the murder of the ignorant? Now some people would look back and they say, well, Spence, you know what? I really don't think we should be worried about them when we got people right here around Wellston. And I agree. Do you know, according to the latest statistical census numbers, there's over 12,883 people residing within a 10 miles of this church. 12,883 sorry, 833 people within a 10 mile radius of this church. And, and, and this is what's so discouraging. Of that number, only 40% claim to be churched. Only 40%. Only 40% claim to be churched. Now they don't claim to be Baptist. They don't claim to be Episcopal. They don't claim to be Catholic. They don't claim to be, they just claim to be church. They don't say that we go every Sunday. They don't say that we go once a Sunday. They just say we just are church. The other group either are de-churched, unchurched, or some other religious affiliation. Which means that within a 10 mile radius of this church, you have 7,700 people that don't claim to be church. Brothers and sisters, church, there is a whole people outside these walls that are waiting for us to reach. That are living, that are possibly living in ignorance, not knowing why they need to go to church, not knowing what God has done for them, not knowing truth from lie, heresy from doctrine. They don't know because they're living in ignorance and if they stay in that state of ignorance, where are they headed? Hell. Are we guilty of the murder, the killing, the death of the ignorant? But then there's another one. God comes to us in Exodus 20 verse 13 and he says, You shall not murder. He speaks to the innocent. He speaks to the ignorant. But think about the murder of Emmanuel. The murder of a man you will. Emmanuel just simply means God with us. We sing it all the time when it comes to the Christmas season. Emmanuel, Emmanuel will sing that song talking about the presence God sending His Son to die for us. This idea that God came in the flesh. The incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. It's this idea that Christ did not stay in heaven looking down and saying oh I hope they get their stuff together. Oh I hope they get it figured out. Oh I hope they change and turn before it's too late. I hope they figure something out between now and then. No Christ 
Christ came to us. God sent His Son. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He tells us right there in that passage that God sent Christ for our sake. He sent Him for you and I. He did not send Him because He was bored. He did not send Him because He thought that was a good idea. He sent Him because of His love for you and I. So God sent His Son. His Son came, was incarnated, lived a sinless life, and then what happened? He was killed. And I'm not talking about just a shot. I'm not talking about a lethal injection. The most heinous, the most heinous, the most vile, the most reprehensible way to die. The Romans were masters of cruel and unusual punishment. The Romans were masters of how to kill people and make them suffer while they were killing them. If you've seen those caution signs that says not only will this piece of equipment kill you, but it'll hurt you while it's killing you. It's one of those things that he came and the Romans had figured this out and so when it came time to crucify Jesus, they didn't do it the easy way. They did it the worst way they could imagine. Why? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then it goes on in verse 25 and it says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier. The one who has faith in Jesus. We're reminded that there had to be a payment for our sin. And Christ came as the payment for our sin. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. There was Emmanuel coming down to this earth. God sent His Son knowing that He was going to have to die for our sin. So the reason that Jesus died was not because of a mistake He made. The reason why Jesus died was not because of a wrong that He had done. The reason that Jesus had died is not because of any fault of His own. It's because every single eyeball looking at me, every single nose that's gathered in this room, every single human on the face of the earth has sinned and that sin carries a penalty. So you sit here this morning and you say, well Spence, I'm not guilty of murder. I'm not guilty of causing death. I'm not guilty of causing somebody harm. I haven't been negligent. I haven't been careless. Why are you saying any of this stuff to me, Spence? I am not responsible. And I'm here to tell you this morning, church, we are responsible for the ignorant. We are responsible for the innocent. And we are responsible for the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are. Us. We are responsible. But God did this. Christ did this. So that after Peter and John lamed, uh, healed the lame beggar there at the temple and all the throng were running around wanting to know, Peter, how'd you do it? John, how'd you do it? And Peter gets up and he begins to preach. And in Acts 4 and verse 12, he says, And there is no salvation, or and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter's able to look at them and say, There is no other way to be reconciled to God besides going to the blood of Jesus Christ. No other way. Which is why we can be here this morning and to say, I am not innocent. But I can be justified. I'm not innocent. 
but I can be righteous. I am not innocent, but I can be forgiven. I am not guiltless, but you know what? Christ has paid the price for me. So you get back there to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13, and you come to this passage and it says, You shall not murder and do times we look at this passage and say not written to me, not written for me next. And brothers and sisters I wonder this morning are you guilty? Are you guilty? Are you guilty? Our sin and guilt led to the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My sin sin. So we come to this passage, we read this verse and so many times historically we've just checked out. Not me, not to me, next. But I wonder how many of us are guilty here this morning? Guilty of not standing up and speaking out for the innocent among us. Not guilty of being concerned about the ignorance and the lostness of the people around us. Guilty of taking the sacrifice and the gift that God gave us for granted. So how's the foundation? We've been talking all this series about the foundation, about how our foundation is built. So let me ask you three questions in the way of application having to do with your foundation. Am I guilty of apathy? Am I guilty of apathy? You see these numbers about the unborn. You hear these numbers about abortion. You hear these numbers about the unreached. You hear these numbers about the lost. You even hear these numbers about those around us. And so many times we've heard them and we know them, but we've grown so apathetic we don't even care. It doesn't even bother us. I can hear about people being murdered, babies being murdered in the womb, and that doesn't even cause a twinge. The young lady was there at the Republican National Convention and she was talking about sitting there in the Planned Parenthood surgery room watching the doctor perform an abortion, watching on the sonogram, the ultrasound machine, watching the baby actively in the womb trying to get away from the, 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 the suction tube, get away from the abortion device. And she said, there is no doubt that was a child. There was no doubt that that child knew there was harm. There was no doubt that that child was aware of what was taking place. Even though they may not have the frame, even though they may not have the vernacular or the vocabulary, that child knew it was in danger and that child knew that it was a child. And yet, we can come in and walk out and not even bother us. Am I guilty of apathy? Am I guilty of indifference? Apathy and indifference, they're close to being the same thing, but sometimes indifference can be just simply the fact that you can walk up and down the street, you can go in and out of beds, you can go throughout your daily lives, you can gather around this Labor Day weekend, and you, and you can see these people, and you don't even wonder, are they saved or are they lost? You don't even wonder where they're going to be at in 10,000 years. You're not even concerned about whether they're saved or lost, because all you're worried about is you. And Lord, help us when we get so guilty of indifference that we stop caring about the people's souls. Lord, help us that we get to the point where we feel so selfish and so introspective and, we, and we're so worried about me, me, me that I'm not thinking about anybody else. Lord, help us when we get so apathetic and indifferent that we stop doing what God has called us to do. God, help us that we can go out throughout our daily lives and not be bothered 
the people that we know and care about deeply today could spend an eternity in hell tomorrow. Am I guilty of apathy? Am I guilty of indifference? And then this last one. Am I guilty of denial? Am I guilty of denial? You see, one of the things for you and I to go about our day to lives unmoved by the message of Jesus Christ, one of the things necessary for you and I to go throughout our lives unchanged and unhindered by the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply just to deny that we are submitted to it or simply deny that we have a responsibility to it or simply deny that it should change something about us. We, we find out even in the gospel of John that changed people change people and found people change people. And all throughout the scripture you're reminded that when we come in contact with the gospel, when we get saved, when Christ forgives us of our sins and we are now radically a new person, there should be a difference in us. There should be a change in us. There should be something different about us. And yet, in order for me to go out throughout my daily life, me to go out throughout my regular daily schedule, for me to do everything business as usual, I just have to deny that Scripture is true. I have to deny that Jesus is Lord. I have to deny that I have any responsibility whatsoever before God. And if we're not careful, we can get in a state of denial. For some of us, Proof of that is just look down. One ice cream bowl is not going to hurt. One double cheeseburger is not going to hurt. I'll make up for it next week. Oh, I know it's after 9 o'clock, but boy, that bag of chips sure does look tasty right now. And you keep denying, and you keep denying that this is what's going to happen, that this is the effect, and you deny, and you deny, and you deny, and the next thing you know, you wake up, you walk in there and go, ooh, <laughs> Because you've denied so long that you've gotten so far away. And I wonder how many of us in the church today are guilty of denial. We assume that someone else is going to deal with that problem. We assume that someone else is going to take care of that problem. We assume that someone else is responsible for that problem. Spence, you can't hold me guilty. Spence, you can't hold me responsible. Spence, you can't say that it's my job because I'm just so busy. I have so much stuff going on. I don't have any time. Spence, I've done everything I can. Spence, you can't ask me for anything more. It's not me asking you to do anything me asking you what is your responsibility to God so many times brothers and sisters we get so caught up with everything in our lives we have no time for God so we sit by and watch the murder of the innocent take place and we keep our mouth shut we watch people come in and out of our lives on a regular basis headed for hell and we never say a word we accept that Jesus has died for our sins but we don't Recognize that means that now we live for Him and He is now the Lord of our lives. Are you guilty? Are we guilty? Please do not come to this passage and just assume it has to do with manslaughter one or negligent homicide or something that doesn't apply to us. But please come and ask yourself, have I been guilty? Of carelessness, negligence, or causing the death of someone around me. Would you bow your heads with me?